I am thrilled to announce that An Actor Despairs is partnering with a wonderful CBD company called Kind Farms. Everyone out there has heard of CBD. I started taking it a few years ago when I first started getting sober and to help with my anxiety. Sadly, as one can do, I was overtraining in the gym, and a friend recommended a topical and a tincture to help with the pain. I tried it. It was okay. However, recently, I was introduced to a product that has really changed my life. Not only has it helped me with anxiety, but I am stronger than I have ever been. I'm able to carry out lifts my body used to prevent me from doing. Kind Farm products have single-handedly changed my life athletically and personally. They utilize 100% local licensed farmers, organic cultivation, and CO2 extraction for superior CBD. Kind Farms is turning CBD to a kind alternative to pharmaceuticals. Let's transform tobacco row into hemp row. If you want to get involved, please reach out. Together, we can make a difference. You can use my code RYAN10 for 10% off. You can find them on Instagram at Kind Farms Inc., all one word. That's K I N D P H A R M S I N C. And their website is kindfarmsinc.com. Once again, my code for 10% off is Ryan10. And now, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Today on An Actor Despairs, we have the team behind the upcoming doc, Kill Chain, The Cyber War on America's Elections. We have filmmaker Sarah Teal and hacker Hori Hursty. This film does a wonderful job of showing the susceptibilities of American democracy in the electoral process. It is a mandatory watch. I don't want to give anything away. These two are so profound in what they do and what they did with this film. Here it is. Hari and Sarah, welcome to An Actor Despairs. How are you doing? Very well. How are you? Very well, thank you. Yeah, it's crazy times that we're living in right now, but I really appreciate you guys, you know, still coming on the show. Well, well thank you for having thank us. Thank you for having us. So your film, Kill Chain, The Cyber War on America's Election, was single-handedly the best documentary I've seen probably in the past 10 years. And I'm not just saying that. I was, I mean, it was one of those few moments. I feel like the, the litmus test now for viewership is like the amount of times you touch your phone during a viewer. And I, I, I threw my phone in the other room. I was just glued to the screen the whole time trying to retain as much information as possible. So it, it, I, I really say this with sincerity. It was, it was an impeccable film. And I, I really thank you for your service so much for, for doing it. But before we kind of dig in and, and let the audience know what it's about, could you guys introduce yourselves? Yeah, my name is Harry Hurst. I'm yeah. a lifelong hacker and re- uh, security researcher. Uh, I, I was, I'm in the film, the person who is kind of being followed through. This is a follow-up for uh, Hacking Democracy on 2006. And that shows when uh, back in 2005, I hacked the default voting machines uh, for Ian Sancho, who was the election supervisor, Tallahassee, Florida. In my past, I also have been not only breaking stuff, uh, but building stuff. I was co-founder of the unit, the first pan-European internet service provider. So this thing called internet, I'm very familiar with that because I was part of the first crew who built it around the, lo- around the globe. I love it. And Sarah, how about you? 
Um, yeah, my name is Sarah Teal. I'm a documentary filmmaker, and I was part of the team that made Hacking Democracy and came out in 2006. Um, was nominated for an Emmy. I, I make a lot of documentaries for HBO, and this was one of them. And it came out and, and got a lot of attention, and nothing changed. So we thought we'd better go back and have another look um, and see what was what was going on. So we went back to the subject. Yeah, wow. And uh, Hori, I'm, I'm I'm curious. You you say that so casually, but you know, being a hacker is. I mean, that's like you know, that's genius level stuff. Can you give a little bit of history on how you got into computers and and hacking? Uh, yes. Uh, first of all, I really wasn't interested about computers. Uh, my passion was uh, astronomy, and I spend all my time possible uh, with a telescope during the night. Uh, doing observations, and it was actually the other people who recognized I'm, I'm fairly good in math and uh, introduced me with the early computers and, and rest is history. Then after that, I started uh, earning money when I was nine. I have been working basically full-time since I was 13, and, and, and that was first the developing software. But at the time, the word hacker was really meaning a tinkerer. It was It didn't have the security connotation that much. It was more a builder and, and tinkerer. And then when the, uh, when the other aspects of hacking caught up, uh, that was a time when the Cold War was going on. So I was pulled into that again and uh, found out that I'm fairly good at that. But it's really, I, I'm one of the very few people who didn't grow to that because it was a passion it was more I was trapped into that, and I found I'm very good in what I'm doing. Wow, amazing. And Sarah, how about you? How did you get into filmmaking? Um, well, I, I grew up in England, but uh, I came to um, – I'm, I'm half American. I came in 1983, and <clears throat> I worked for public television in Boston, WGBH, and then started my own company a few years later. So I've been making documentaries for a long time now wow. um, and love doing them. Um, and, but this feels like possibly the most important thing that um, I've done and that Simon Russ and I have worked on. Um, it, couldn't, it couldn't be more timely and important, and I'm hoping that it rises above the noise of coronavirus yeah. so that people pay attention. Because without... Without without being able to vote and without being able to trust our vote, um, we don't have we don't have a democracy and we don't have um, a society that any of us I think would be comfortable living in. Yeah, I completely agree, and I think this film is absolutely going to change the world and in in kind of a reverse way. I hope because so many people are unfortunately in isolation that you know now viewership and streaming is up you know, at, at all kinds of, you know, numbers. And, and, and I really, I think this film is going to rise above and, and it, it couldn't come at a better time being so close to the 2020 election. But uh, before we dig into this film, just briefly, can you talk about how you two first came into contact with each other? If I give my, yeah, if I give, yeah, let let me, let me give my view. I, I was, uh, I sold uh, two businesses in a row. I decided to retire and I was going around the world backpacking, and uh, I uh, stopped by my old friends in, in L.A., California, in 2004, 
and uh, and I was asked if I would be interested to uh, take a look and uh, uh, do the voting machines and see if they can be hacked. And I told them absolutely not. Uh, it's, uh, I'm I'm off the Tahiti. <laughs> anyway, they tried to explain, <laughs> they tried to ex- explain me uh, explain me what they thought they knew. And I immediately told them, like, this cannot be that bad. It's the, you're misunderstanding something. There's some kind of uh, a, a, a expiration. This is this cannot be true. Uh, you know, there's nothing that bad actually in in the world. In in, in this is a conspiracy theory land. And and then after that, uh, I I was being pestered a number of times, and eventually then uh, the information uh, and my contact came to. Uh, a uh, American filmmaker who was then relayed the information to uh, Sarah's partners, who started pestering me again. <laughs> and and <laughs> then after that, I, I eventually, eventually wanted to get rid of them. And I literally remember I was there was a Christmas just before Christmas. I was in a, in Amsterdam, and I decided that to get rid of uh, of these people, I, I just let I, let me ask an impossible set of rules. And so I asked, well, you know, I will. First of all, I said you probably want to have something, who, someone who is more current. I'm, I'm out of this. But you know, if you insist, then uh, you know, I want to have an invitation from election supervisor who was elected and not uh, not appointed, and I need to have the in, indemnification and and you know, a couple of these kind of things. And then I said, well, this this settled the whole thing. This will never happen. And um, and then it took like five months. And then I got a call that uh, Ian Sancher from Tallahassee, Florida, would be inviting me. And that's where uh, where I first time get in uh, in person touch with with the, the people who made the hacking democracy. And this was the Bush Gore election, correct? No, this was a special election, two thousand five. Okay. So actually, the, the the time when I came was right after a a small special election when the uh, equipment which uh, Ion Sancho was used was for a short period of time, not in part of the active elections. And because he was planning to use them, he didn't want to give me an unrestricted access. Uh, there was we, we I had a conversation with him. What would be the rules of the road? Uh, what I can take a look and, and et cetera. But that, this was this was after the 2004. That was the backdrop. Um, because actually the first time when I was asked that election hadn't even happened yet. And so this whole, from the time when I was asked first time hack, which was summer 2004 before the election. And then year later when, well, almost a year later when I actually, uh, then, uh, started looking in that, that all of that happened at the time when I was, I was starting a little bit of gathering information, but really the first time when I, uh, was a hands-on seeing uh, a actual voting machine voting terminal. Of course, the software and all of the, the things of the back-end systems like the election management system, I was already starting to get familiar with those. But that was really in May 2005, after all of this, when I first time uh, took a look into the actual voting machine. Wow. And, and you know, I, I may be young. We're, we're a little bit consistent. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. You have to stick with these. You have to stick with these things for a long time. And I'd just like to say something about Ion Sancho. He is in the new film. Um, we, we went back with Hari to visit him. Um, and that when he allowed Hari to first look at the machines in Leon County, Florida, that was an incredibly brave 
move because the voting machine companies do not let anybody examine these machines. Nobody, no one in government, nobody in anyone. And that was incredibly brave of him to do. Um, and very, and he was punished for it. They tried to fire him. Oh my God. Wow. Um, he was, he was hounded after that. Um, the Bush people, you know, Jeb Bush, was it because he was governor at the time? I forget, but, um, they tried to fire him from his job. And so he came back now because he's still deeply concerned and having made that big sacrifice and then to have nothing happen. Yeah. Um, was very upsetting to him. So essentially, as we moved from voting from like an analog perspective into a digital world, we started utilizing machines, not always just to like press on a, uh, an actual screen, but sometimes they would use the sheets and they scan them in. That's correct, right? Correct. And then, yeah. so there are three major companies, you know, for viewers listening, the the equivalent of like Comcast and Time Warner, uh, that handle the voting uh, actual mechanisms and machines that are in place in the United States. Is that correct? Uh, they are the, the three companies which manufacture the software and, and, and manufacture contracts, the software and hardware. There are more companies in between, which are doing the management part, but the, 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 the core of the infrastructure, the actual machines of election, machine, um, election management system software and the voting machines, those come from three companies, mainly. And they have pretty much zero transparency about how they, how, how they operate, right? I mean, in the film, they declined to be interviewed. Is that correct? Yes, zero transparency. And we ask them continuously... And also at DEF CON, they asked them continuously to, to come and to see what people could do and see the vulnerabilities for free of their machines so that they could correct them. And they didn't come, as far as we know. And, and Hari and Sarah, I'm, I'm curious to ask you, you know, as, uh, as these machines started becoming the new norm, when did cyber warfare really start happening on, on, the, on democracy and, and electoral systems? Like, what, was that the rise of that in 2005 when you were in Tallahassee? Was that when it first kind of started? I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily uh, even know exactly uh, when it actually has started. Uh, because nobody was looking at that, and and, and even when when we started to shed a light in this, uh, the denial was was uh, so strong. So it's very hard to actually know when when uh, all of this fortunately has started. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't really. Uh, I mean, we currently would actually argue that in the modern way of, of uh, what we currently see is way younger but what were the historical elements of what has happened before uh, that really we don't know and a part of this whole equation is that the uh, the the systems we which are majority of systems used in the United States were designed at the time when when cyber warfare was a science fiction uh, the not only that, but also these systems have been designed with no forensic data collection capability, protective logs, security in mind at all. So that's another big part of this. These machines and the whole infrastructure how it's built is incapable of recording that critical data. 
It just doesn't know how to do it. And, and, and part of these companies being so closed-minded and closed off to you is that they systematically prevent you from being able to understand you know the the entire process of which they work and they try to i don't want to say misinformation but they say that they never touch internet which in the film you you touch on is not true at 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 various points all these machines touch internet at some point correct all of these machines yes. touch internet either directly or indirectly and, and really, the, the thing here is that even the older machine generations, which really don't understand Internet, they predate Internet, even they touch Internet because of the operational procedures, how they have changed. So today, it's a common practice across the U.S. that the jurisdictions are hiring a third-party outsourced partner to do the critical programming of the voting machine, programming that election. And it seems to be a common practice that now these critical files are sent over in unprotected email, unencrypted and unauthenticated FTP. So now the critical files are still flowing over the Internet, even when the voting machine says is so old that it doesn't understand how to go to the Internet. Yeah. And I feel right. like... Sarah, and go Sarah, ahead. go on. I feel like we didn't actually make um, clear enough in a funny way in the film is that, you know, when the precincts, all gather their information about who won, who lost, they then very often transfer that information to the central counter via the internet. Wow. And so there are all kinds of different systematic systems um, set in place beyond the actual voting on voting day where the internet is in use. So it's not just yeah. voting. And, and do you, I, I think I'm, the way the whole I, thing I, is set up. Uh, let me let me quickly chime in. So one thing which I think because of the way we look, we look. Uh, so everybody is concentrating very much into the voting terminal and that part of the election. But actually, election process itself is humongous, and the focus has been until recently in a very narrow area. Mm -hmm. If you look for voter registration systems, which is discussed in this film. They are always in the Internet because you have to be able to register to vote right. online. Then you have all from there the data flows, the e-poll book system. Then there's an election management system on the side. Then it's the actual election programming. Then it's the voting terminals. Then it's a gathering the data from the precincts back to the central tabulator. And then it's the publishing of the results, which again is online because that's in the Internet. So it is, there are so many other elements. This is a myriad of systems. Yeah. And some of those systems, especially just the very beginning and the very end, by definition are online systems. So they are always connected to Internet. So, and, and again, since the data flows through this whole system, that as a whole, it, it's connected to Internet in all the phases of this process. And, and in the film, yeah. you, you, you guys show that one of the mechanisms, not even of, of changing the numbers of, of voter suppression, is that sometimes hackers will go onto the voter registration database and literally just flip a number on someone's address. And if their identification doesn't correspond correctly, they're not allowed to vote. Is that correct? Uh, so, yeah. first of all, if, if, if it doesn't correspond, you are not allowed to cast a normal ballot. You will be still able to cast a provisional ballot, but the little secret is that the provisional ballots quite often are just not uh, looked at. 
Also, I would like to point out that yeah. DEFCON, we have a sister village. It's not loading machine hacking village. It's our sister village uh, called The Roots. And they have a hacking contest for teenagers. And uh, back in uh, two years ago, the uh, challenge for the uh, teenagers was to hack a mock-up of a uh, voting election and voting registration system, and 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 the also the the result system. And of course, the kids were able to do it, give or take, in fifteen minutes. Uh, we were immediately uh, challenged by claiming that these uh, mock-up systems were unrealistic, and I have to say, absolutely true, because the person who built the systems, his day job is securing nuclear power plants. So actually, in order to make certain that the kids are not taking the easy road, a lot of places of the system were hardened uh, so that the kids are attacking the actual election-related application and not the underlying stack all the way. Uh, the next thing what was rebuttal was to say, well, these these elections, uh, these these reporting sites which the kids were hacking were uh, pre-hacked, and uh, because of many of the kids use a technique called SQL inject, so the, those sites were pre-hacked, and in real world, uh, that would be impossible that such a trivial attack would be possible to be deployed against a real election-related. Uh, website. And then it comes along Miller Report, and Miller Report uh, actually stipulates in a plain language in unredacted version that the Russian military intelligence GRU used exactly the same technique against the real website. Wow. And in, in your film, you guys cover two elections, obviously one being the most, you know, depressing election in American history, the 2016 Donald Trump election. And then you also cover the Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams election. I'd like to, to dig into both of those, if that's OK with you guys. Um, I think it, it probably yeah. it makes sense to start with the, the presidential election. So the FBI knew that there was uh, GRU attempts to infiltrate our democracy. Is that correct? I mean, the, well, there was the, a call uh, that the, went out in the summer of 2016. That they they certainly officially knew and officially contacted people in the summer of 2016, but presumably they knew ahead of that even, right, Harry? Yeah, I mean, as 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 I said, it's a uh, it's a lot of public information. Uh, Mueller report is wealth of information. Uh, the FOIA documents are wealth of information. Of course, there's no comprehensive picture. Who know what uh, and how much ahead of time? Yeah. But all of these elements show that ahead of time there were a information, there was knowledge, uh, and there was warnings disseminated at least to a, a, a fairly sizable groups of election officials. Yeah, and then I'm I'm curious to ask you, you know, having these three major companies, and you said there's you know hacking conventions. Why don't you think any of these major companies work in congruence with hackers and have them come on and say, how can we make the best voting machine possible, you know, that's protected and, and not infiltratable, if, I'm sorry if that's not a word, and, you know, completely free of, of being able to, you know, have the, the, the foremost minds of our, of our world prevent these things from being hacked? What, that seems like a really, you know, kind of rudimentary thought. Why, why is that not a thing? So that's I the big question. That, I, I think that part of the answer is that uh, this uh, being around for quite a while, uh, this kind of shoot the messenger 
was a more common practice over 30 years ago across the board. The rest of the uh, rest of the world has evolved, and um, the rest of the world in software world has learned to be. There was a lot of embarrassments, and and at the time when over 30 years ago, when the secondary researchers and hackers started looking into other industries software, uh, a a joke came along, which was that if uh, if builders would build cities the way the software development has built the software, the first woodpecker coming along will destroy the civilization. So there was a just embarrassingly bad code everywhere. Yeah. And, and exposing and shining a light has changed everything. Think about Microsoft, whose behavior is fairly open now, and Microsoft is doing a good job in securing uh, their operating system. That was not the case in, in early versions of Windows. Yeah. The culture has changed. And, and uh, this is actually an observation which me and uh, my fellow researchers have shined a number of times. Wow. A better way to understand how, you, how vulnerable you are is not to understand how vulnerable your software is, but what is the company's reaction to that? Because the, if the company's reaction is chilling effect, legal actions, uh, massive lobbying and marketing instead of fixing. That means the culture is broken. The secu- there's no security culture. The culture is, is wrong. And that tells more about the lack of security than the actual vulnerabilities we are reporting. Wow. Sarah, do you, do you have anything to add to that? Well, I, I think there is a very strange culture going on with those companies, ESNS in particular, um, uh, <laughs> lack of transparency is, is they, there is no transparency. They will not let people in. They will not let people look at their code. And you have to ask yourself why. Okay. And, and maybe they don't want to pay to, to upgrade. Maybe they don't want to pay to have cybersecurity experts come in and look at their machines. Um, I actually think it's weirder than that, but, um, even if it's that, they're, they're still not responding to it. Yeah. So you do have to ask yourself why and who are the people behind these companies? And you cannot find who are behind these companies and who are the investors in these companies. It's all um, completely hidden. And again, you just have to ask yourself, why is that? Wow. And and I'm curious to ask you, you know, uh, when when the 2016 happened, you know, we knew that, you know, obviously Putin and Trump were kind of in cahoots. There's a lot of suspicion, you know, from Julian Assange and Christopher. Uh, what I'm sorry, what's the steal the dossier? And um, I'm curious to ask you, you know, for just to kind of break it down for an audience who maybe doesn't understand, and, and I don't want them to get lost. So I'd like to. Sorry if I'm kind of doing this in amateur layman's terms, but can you break down exactly what the uh, advantages are for a foreign nation of hacking another nation? I know it seems like an obvious question, but I think it's imperative that it's answered a lot more eloquently than I could articulate right now. (laughs) So if we look the history of uh, adversarial actions, into elections. Uh, that is a, a very old phenomenon in, in the United States. The original worry was, uh, I believe, French uh, meddling with, uh, uh, with the, before any computers were around, 
fringe meddling with uh, with the U.S. elections back in in over hundred years ago. Uh, there's a long history of that, and, and literally that is called threat modeling. So in order for to any sector to be built, you have to understand uh, what are the motivations, uh, what uh, adversarial actors might be wanting to achieve. What are the who are the adversary the, the threat actors? Uh, what are the tools? Uh, and you build this model. U.S. election threat model has been fundamentally wrong until very recently. Yeah. Uh, in the threat model, the U.S. was a only thing looking into domestic uh, bad actors, a, a candidate who was willing to step over the line to achieve a victory. And the support groups of the of the proposals who want to push their agenda through. So it was all domestic and it, it was all selfish. I want this one to win. But when you look at foreign actor, foreign actors have a multitude, usually multitude of different uh, mission goals. And 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 one of the mission goals, uh, if that doesn't work, you might have to want to have a second. You want to achieve as, as many goals as you want. When you look a Cold War, that was an ideological war, uh, communism against uh, a capitalism. Yeah. And if you look that model, it's not about who candidate wins. It's about destroying the ideology and people, parts of the people who are part of the society, they believe in their own society. Yeah. So it's all about sowing discord, undermining the trust into the system, undermining people's belief in the society. And when we look what democracy is, democracy is, the fundament of democracy is an election. And what elections give you is a people to mean to tell what they wish. At the same time, the, the purpose of democracy is a peaceful transition of power. Of course, the winner is always going to accept the results. So actually, elections are not about winners. It's about losers. Yeah, it's about well. that because the peaceful transition is only possible if the losing parties and the support of the losing proposals believe and trust and have a transparency that they lost fair and square. And this was the true representation of the will of the people. Right. And that's why this is all about transparency and building a system which the people who didn't get it their way can go and see, okay, we we lost fair and square. Let's go behind who is the winner and, and unite this. If you don't have that trust that it was fair and square, that is when the divided nation becomes. Wow. And, and and I'm curious to ask you guys, you know, obviously in the 2004, 2008, you know, there wasn't quite what there is in, you know, even 2012, I would say 2016 was like really the pinnacle of social media. And can you talk about how that kind of, you know, there was so much misinformation and disinformation, you know, put on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all those things and how that played a role in, in also, uh, you know, destabilizing the election. I will take the first cut and then I give it to Sarah. But let me let me uh, I, let me address a, a a common misconception. Okay. So uh, a common misconception is to look into disinformation and put an equal mark. Think it's the same as propaganda. 
Mm-hmm. It is not. Propaganda, which is the traditional hundred-year-old, centuries-old way, that is a, a mechanism, a psychological operations, a mechanism to make you, to convince, to believe in something which I want you to believe. When we look at disinformation, that is absolutely not the, the case. Disinformation is a series of deliberately and strategically conflicting messages. And conflicting messages produced very often by the same party. So yeah. the same adversary is creating a storm of conflicting messages. And the ultimate goal is to make certain that your view of reality gets so distorted that it's impossible for you to anymore accept and trust any information source. Yeah. And hence you have the incapability of starting to disseminate anymore a real information. And that's when your belief bubbles start forming. That's when all of this, this is happening. This information was existing as a tool before internet and social media. What internet and social media gave is this to put in scale. Yeah. And that is, before this, this was a tool used mainly against the trained professionals to distort their view, but they were trained professionals, they have defenses. Now when micro-targeting and disinformation and scale is turned against untrained civilian population, this is what we are seeing. We don't have a training of human firewall. And that's something that we need to figure out very quickly. Some of the nations already put in elementary school a training about how to to have a source critique of information you get. But we have to start developing human firewall so that we, as every individual human, can defend our own mind from the bombardering of different messages, especially this kind of messaging, where the messaging, the purpose of the messaging is not to drive the agenda. The agenda, is, specific agenda, the agenda is to stop you to believe and stop you to be able to learn. Sarah, you got yeah. anything to add to that? I think, <clears throat> well, I think I think the um, social messaging component is incredibly important, but in a way, it's it's not. It's not where we went because um, it, it, it's very hard to pin down um, exactly the impact that it can have. You know, there was a film, um, The Great Hack, about Cambridge Analytica and, yeah. and how much that actually swayed people. And I think it does. It's the same thing as Hari says. It's like undermining of trust yeah. in information. Um, but I, I feel like what, what we were looking at can in a way have a very tangible um, and deep impact. If you're preventing people from voting by hacking the registration rolls, or if by, you know, knocking off all the, the cards that start the machine so that people have to wait in line for six hours, or like with CyberVice Illustrate, where you can actually change the vote, um, then you are doing very tangible damage. <laughs> Yeah. In, in changing the results of our election. Um, and, and it's clear that it happened, and it's clear that it will happen again in 2020. So we were looking at something, I think, very tangible 
And and kind of one of the scarier things I thought was that you know it kind of uh, you know a guy who originally you know condemned uh, I don't know whether it's a syndicate or an organization I guess organization would be classified WikiLeaks and how Julian Assange and Trump kind of kind of came together and then they re- released the DNC emails and and everything else and all those files and the the Hillary Clinton uh, Benghazi information and that kind of uh, you know. Tactical warfare, I believe, I guess would is how I would call it. Like that's unprecedented in in the world. And so, do you believe that Trump utilized all this? You know what was happening to his advantage. I mean, I I, I believe the answer is obviously yes. But is that something objectively the world can can say is a fact? Well, that's, that's, I, I, that's the hard thing, and that's the hard thing with this also is that it's very very hard to actually prove. You know, and to prove a link between Trump and Assange, or I mean, I think I think we, we can't, but it's 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 very hard. And as Harry said about the machine, you know, you might want think that something actually happened, and it's very all indications show that they did, but it's very hard to to prove. Um, so it's it, it's it's very clever in that sense. And how much he knew about that, who knows? It's all speculation. And we were trying very hard in, in this film um, n- not to speculate. It was right. Um, it's bipartisan and it's factual, and every single line in that film, whether it's from Hari or anybody else, we had to have um, backup information that was not from um, reporters, other reporters, but came from factual documents for absolutely everything to be sure that we were just dealing in fact (laughs) as much as possible because we know that people are going to come at us um, and we want to be ready for that. But Of course. um, That's the hard thing with all of this is that it's very hard to nail down and say this happened. Right. Um, I I, I would also want to point out that uh, from the disinformation and from the both the psychological warfare and what is now called influence operations, influence point of view. One, again, problem how people are, and even sometimes media, are uh, disseminating and analyzing these massive dumps of uh, leaks is that they don't look it from the processing point of view. Someone who got that information has filtered already the information, take everything they don't like away, and at the same time had the capability of adding fake messages yeah. into that stream where the, the, the vast volume of the data will give a credibility from anything they add or modify in those messages. So this is the problem of, of, of analyzing and especially when you're looking from a soundbite uh, or you look something what you, you take as the central piece of your communication, see what happened here, is that once you, when you have that dump, the dump as a whole has completely different value than the dump, uh, the individual things which are inside of that. So it's always have to remember when analyzing this kind of information, what has been filtered out? by the people before they, they put it out. What has been added or modified in there to bolster and underline and drive agenda? And also sometimes uh, 
the well-funded, well-motivated adversaries actually do think ahead. So there can be information which has been planted into these dumps to be pointed out way later. Say, oh, see what was there already four years ago. If you plant it there and you drive the world to the place where it all of a sudden have relevance, now it's even more credible if you make in the eyes of, of uh, and ears of a general public who don't know how these things work. Think, oh, it must be true because it was there four years ago. Who would have able ever been able to predict? And, and my my old friends who are in the intelligence community, they said they one of my good friends he has a saying that coincidences. They are the most cumbersome to arrange. It sometimes takes years to get them to work. Yeah. Wow. And and I'm curious, you know, <laughs> one of the scariest things I found in, in the film is that it's is it true after I think it's like two or two and a half years that all the uh, voting ballots are incinerated and, and ripped. So you couldn't even go back and analyze the, the raw data. So the yeah. federal yeah. federal law. Uh, is uh, stipulating that if there is a federal race on the ballot, then all election information is needed to be preserved for 22 months. That doesn't mean you cannot preserve it longer. So there is no order which forces you to destroy them after 22 months. But after 22 months, that is a time when that information can be destroyed. Interestingly enough, as a number of judges who have been le- recently looking into a uh, election data uh, have been finding out that when these lawsuits come into the place, uh, all data has not been preserved. And, and there is this uh, recently famous quote from the judge uh, uh, in the Georgia lawsuit where the judge was uh, asking the uh, defendants, what, which part of all you didn't understand because so much information had been destroyed. <laughs> well, I, I think if you consider, you know, at least as an actor, I do, it comedy, the overwhelming presence of tragedy, you guys were able to go to Ohio, I believe, and find an eBay, just kind of rudimentary civilian who had tons and tons of voting machines that were they're no, in no longer use. And... The, yeah, that was the, that was the, one of the first things that happened, actually. Wow. <clears throat> so, so, so let me let me that, uh, go back in this. Uh, so, the uh, first of all, uh, voting machines as an individual machines has been floating around and being sold for a long time, but they have been individual machines. These machines, which were in Ohio, are still in use, and at the time when we bought, they were in uh, in, in use in a number of more states. I think believe I believe today those machines are in use like 13 states. Wow. Uh, but the argument has been that voting machines, bad actors cannot be getting hold of the, these voting machines. First of all, that's uh, fundamentally wrong because the voting machine vendors are selling these machines internationally. Actually, one of the big three machines, they are one of the best selling machines. The launching customer, the, the reference customer, the, the reservoir customer they had was the state of Mongolia between Russia and, and, wow. and China. So that was their first customer. Also, right. these machines so are the not only the... Russians walk into Mongolia, pick them up. Jeez. So, 
Sorry, so also, also these voting machines are, a uh, number of them have the actual software is written outside of the U.S. The hardware comes from, uh, has a component on even the sites which are outside of the U.S. So actually, for a lot of these uh, machines, U.S. is a foreign place to start with. But when we started DEFCON uh, voting machine hacking religion, and, and let me explain why it's possible, uh, the blunt weapon, the Blunt weapon, which has been used by, previously used by voting machine, uh, voting technology companies, has been DMCA, Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And, and that has been used to create the chilling effort. Uh, I, at the time when that was a real consideration, I was always arguing, and it's a very interesting thing that, uh, because if you are a real foreign actor, uh, and you are wanting to mess with the election, you probably are not too concerned about digital familiar <laughs> copyright act. Yeah. But if you are a good actor, that's a real consideration. Anyway, we, we managed to uh, write the position papers and we managed to get a, a DMC exempt for voting machines so that a good state security research of voting machines is possible without this plant weapon. That created the possibility of the voting village yeah and of course when we once we had the voting village idea then we were starting to think well where, where we got the voting machines and then we found voting machines everywhere ebay government surplus stores uh we found them all around the place and and the government surplus stores we bought voting machines which are still used in over 20 states for a meager amount of zero dollars wow. so actually they were giving them away and we have to pay for one dollar to get the purchaser's certificate so that we, we can show it if somebody asks where they came from. And when we started voting village, voting village, one of the biggest vendors wrote a letter to a number of jurisdictions, their customers, telling that what we have been doing is illegal. We have been buying, there have been a few stolen voting machines sold in eBay. These are illegally, per, uh, you know, acquired machines because they are stolen. Yeah, and that's why it is so funny because this is the when the movie comes out. This is the first time when the picture, because this actually the, that actual thing was part of that was the that they, this this part was part of the the claim. So this is the first time when actually the people who received the letter saying there was a few stolen voting machines <laughs> see what it actually was. Wow. So we have been we put a repeal saying no no we bought them fair and square from eBay. But the whole thing that it was not cute and visual, yes, there was massive puzzles. This nobody has really seen that before this. Yeah, and and why wouldn't one of these big three companies, when they see some of their old, outdated machines or even you know ones that are still in use, why wouldn't they immediately purchase them? Do you think that would be the best way to protect the you know the sanctity of of our democracy? But they these things like that guy in Ohio, he had like. Like seventy five in that store. I mean, it was crazy. No, no, yeah, over a thousand. Over twelve hundred. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so first of all, <laughs> he he actually had offered them first to the vendor, and the vendor had refused to buy them back. What? So he did. So he he. That's what. So he did offer it. You can't uh, make this up. Oh my. God. <laughs> so the second the second part of this is that. In any security system, whether it is your your point of sale system in your grocery store, whether it's ATM in your local bank, 
whether it's voting machine, whatever it is, you always assume your adversaries have an unrestricted access to the equipment and even to the source code. That is the starting point of a actual real uh, security analysis. So the whole idea that a, uh, a eBay, if, if, if you are, if anyone makes the claim that the, these systems are secure because uh, bad actors don't get access to that, uh, then that is a, a, a red flag of a capital size. They are doing it wrong and they don't understand anything about security. Yeah. In the real world, the fact of the matter, these voting machines should be given for free to everyone. Yeah. Think around. Because if you have thought about security, if you are serious about security, the fact that anyone in the world, the, your worst nightmare should have a stack of them, because they are anyway, your worst nightmare is anyway going to have it. Now you, by having the, everybody to have access, you have also the good actors who, who will help you to improve it. But the fact that these machines are in eBay or in government software store, that shouldn't be any shape or form by anyone yeah. considered to be a security risk. Yeah. Because if you are doing your job, even if you are even making a medical job, if you, if you understand 101 of security, this shouldn't be part of your problem that bad actors have unrestricted access because they always have. Yeah. And then you were able to, you know, you, you broke open the, the mechanism of the machine and you were able to understand systematically how all the, you know, different electronic parts worked. And then you pulled it back up and you were able to see that I believe it was like, it was still that machine in particular on, in the film was like used through 2013. And is that correct? Yeah, that that yeah. that that unit, that sing, single individual unit, was yes used in 2013. Let me also uh, point out one interesting thing which we have learned from uh, from the uh, voting village. So first of all, let me also say that DefCon voting village is not about uh, showing if these machines can be hacked. We all know they can be hacked. Yeah. It's an educational effort where we are teaching, uh, before DEFCON voting was only very small group of privileged people like myself and the co-founder Matt Place had a legal access to voting machines and we were able to do a secondary research and we knew the truth. We have single-handedly hundredfolded the number of people who now have access to the voting machines. Wow. What is really scary is, for example, uh, my old friends who have been doing uh, a, a, a decades of work in the forensics in, in thriller work, because they discovered from one voting machine a playlist of Chinese songs. What? Playlist of Chinese <laughs> songs in the voting machine. Oh, my God. Why would be, well, why would it be there? The other part is that when we purchase these voting machines, you would think that when you have a certain make and model, the hardware would be the same in all the machines because they are same make and model and they're supposed to be some kind of certification. What we have discovered is that we get a different hardware. So when we buy a same machine, which is believed exactly the same machine, and there's only one machine which is authorized to be used, you get two different kind of machines under the same label yeah. when you buy it from different jurisdictions. Wow. Uh, and again, in the case of these Chinese songs, those Chinese songs were in, a, in about half of the voting machines, but in no, not all. How on earth this inconsistent 
con- software content in the voting machines. So actually by the things which we, this is again, if somebody would try to, as I started, when they were trying to explain what they thought they know about voting machines, I said, well, you must be lying. It cannot be this bad. I would have never even imagined that it's possible, even with these very relaxed certification. I didn't think it's possible that when you start pulling voting machines from different jurisdictions, you all of a sudden have a completely different hardware coming to your way, which means that the certifications are wrong. Half of these machines are illegally being used. (laughs) Then you have the software, you have the software configurations, you have the Chinese places. I would have never, before DEF CON, if somebody would have told me that uh, there's a Chinese play, Chinese playlist of Chinese songs in the voting machine. I would be laughing like, yeah, this is crazy world, but it's not that crazy. Yeah. And now I'm not laughing. <laughs> wow. And then uh, now we got to move on to the, the the final part of the film is you guys cover the 2018 governor election in Georgia, Brian Kemp versus Stacey Abrams. And I want to make sure I artic- yeah. articulate this correctly. So please correct me at any moment. Originally, the voting machines and voting mechanisms were all controlled by it was it, it was a college of Georgia. Is that correct, or what was it called? Yes, the Kennesaw State College had um, a, uh, a division, a unit there that um, uh, that basically programmed all of the machines for all of Georgia. Georgia is a little different than any other state um, in that they. Uh, throughout the state, in every single county, every single precinct, they use the same machine. And they were all programmed um, by the uh, Georgia election systems at Kennesaw State University. Wow. Um, but that was hacked by Logan Lamb, who's in our film. Um, yeah. And there's a whole sequence that is actually not in our film because it was too much. Um, where Logan went in, he was able to hack into the Kennesaw State into the election systems there um, and downloaded all the software. Wow. Um, really by accident. So he called the head, Mel King, the head of the Georgia election systems there and to tell him that he'd done this and <laughs> to warn him and, in, and Mel King then threatened him. Um, so that information was suppressed and Logan just sort of went on with his life and then double-checked before the 2016 election to see if it had been fixed the way he was able to do that, and it hadn't. Um, they were able to get in a second time, he and a colleague. So Georgia was wide open, and they knew it was wide open. Um, so what Brian Kent did was move all the machines, all the programming, everything, into his office, the Secretary of State's office, um, without fixing them. Um, and then he was then running for governor, running basically with all the machines, all the programming, oh out of his own office. You literally can't make this up. And then, so, it, 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 was it... You can't make this up! You can't! I mean, only in America. And then, yeah. it was... It, uh, correct me if I'm... Please... It was Precinct 10, Voting Machine 3, and a district that has always gone Democratic for, like, I believe a decade is what you say in the film. It might, yeah. might, might even be longer. That machine was, was, was voting Republican, and that was unprecedented and unheard yeah. of, right? Is, is that Yes, cr- and, and we had Phil Stark and his, um, his 
PhD graduate um, look into this and st- statistician. And he and she decided that it was a million to one chance that that would, that would happen. And actually what we don't say in the film was that that precinct was where um, Brian Kemp himself votes. Wow. And it, he, <laughs> he only won in, in what we call the election by a margin of 1.7%, right? Yeah. And so Brian... Yeah. Brian Kemp rigged this election and we can we can say that, you know, because th- th- we're going to have this air after, you know, your your film is out. He he hacked. He I don't know what the verb would be rigged well, or, you know, we can't say whether he actually himself did this. We, I mean, we can just show what happened. Yeah. Because, what? Because factually, what happened was that all those cards failed and in um Gwinnett County, which is the largest county in Georgia, and um, as the head of the elections there says, tends to swing um, decide the the elections because of its size. But it's also a majority black county, and it happened in three majority black counties that those cards failed. Wow! And <laughs> I mean. I'm I'm really hoping as this airs, you know, right now we're in the future and that Brian Kemp resigns from this because that's what I took out of it. And I think the best documentaries, they ask more questions than they provide answers. And that's why I was so in love with your film. I was like, I just I, 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 I was stir crazy after it. I was asking, you know, millions of questions. And and I'm I'm so curious, you know, now, like, you know what, we're we're, we're six months away and. I mean, is is there any hope? <laughs> Hari? I hate asking Hari well, these questions. Because <laughs> what, what would you say, Irish? No. <laughs> so, so for, 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 first of all, the when we look the elections as whole, uh, there's all. So, first of all, nothing in the film should be discouraging you to vote. Yeah. If you're eligible to vote, right. please I appreciate vote. you saying um, that. Um, uh, and when you vote, exactly. please vote all the way down to the ballot because uh, the while we pay attention to the top races, the money, a few billion dollars for this, few billion dollars for that, all of the money is down in the ballot where people are massively undervoting. Please vote all the way down the ballot. If you really care, become a poll worker. Yeah. When are you... Uh, and, and because... The, Poll workers and that environment really need, say, uh, people who are technologically savvy and can help the other poll workers and help. Is that a volunteer or is that a career that you have to to pursue? No, it's it's, it's a volunteer work. Volunteer, okay. It's a volunteer work. You can just volunteer. uh, And, and, you know, it's a lot of work for one day, but basically it's it's, um, uh, a day of training and a a, a very long day of work. Wow. So uh, it's really uh, worth doing and, and, and I, I think the, the most important thing here is that also, if your jurisdiction doesn't yet use a handmarked paper ballots, uh, you know, write your representative and ask, why don't we have a, a, a handmarked paper ballot? Yeah. And then paper, as every evidence, evidence ha- is evidence only when you can look at it. Yeah. So demand, a risk limiting audit, demand that there's mandatory audits on all races every time. There's a bristling audit, a wonderful tool, which in a low labor penalty, low labor cost, enables you to convince yourself and convince in an open 
transparent process, convince the public that the election have chosen the right winner. And, and that is, we need to restore the trust. And, and having a open audit, which, which is a public event, everybody can observe how it's a, that's one great way of restoring trust. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And risk-limiting audits are not that difficult. You, you count a random percentage of the votes by, you know, that our paper in, in, in New York State, we, right. we still have hand-marked paper ballots. And if you just count a random just to assure yourself, and if it's a very close election, you keep counting um, that percentage until it's clear who won. And um, that's the solution. And Virginia showed that you can go to paper ballots at the last minute. It doesn't, it's not hard. Wow. And I think one of the scariest things that I, I, I saw in the film is that, you know, this should be a bipartisan thing, but Mitch McConnell, who in my opinion is Satan himself, stopped, you know, uh, from any kind of legislation going to prevent, you know, basic, basic measures to protect, protect our next election. And he stopped it. Is that correct? Yes. And as Amy Klobuchar says, you have to, at a certain point, you have to ask yourself that there must be something bad happen. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's now been six times. There was a, a, a sixth bipartisan um, uh, bill that came up quite recently. Um, and when, when the Secure Elections Act came up, which was with Senator Langford, who's a very, very conservative Republican, but is very good on this issue, and Amy Klobuchar, um, and then a lot of other senators on both sides of the aisle, and when, they, when the Secure Elections Act came up, I thought, oh, my God, that we're not going to need to do our film. Our film is gone because it was such a good, well-written, very clear, very sensible act. And yeah. I called Harry and I'm like, oh, my God, we don't need to do this film anymore. And he said, it won't happen. Oh, man. And it didn't happen. And, and, and they've tried to bring it to a floor count um, a couple more times since. And it is killed by the White House, by Mitch McConnell, every single time. And God. as Amy Klobuchar says, you know, you have to start imagining that something, something very bad is happening. That we don't. I mean, there is no argument for and not securing the election. Ari, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. You know, looking forward to the future. You know, like right now in 2020, we do our most private things on our cell phone, our banking our mortgages, our health insurance. We do things that, like, I think people would say are more private than voting. You know, like, I, I think a lot of people, if you ask who they vote for, they would tell you. But if you ask how much money they had in their bank account, they would say, no, you know, I'm, I'm not sharing that. And because we do all those things on our phone, do you think there's ever a world, because now that we have the face ID and the fingerprint mechanisms, that voting will be done on devices not at a precinct? Or is that... Is that just too much, uh, you know, I, I, I'm just trying to figure out where we're heading. So we, first of all, the, the difference between online banking and all of that is that you can go back and correct errors. In, in elections, the key here is that you have to get it right first time, every time. There's no, there's secret battles and auditability. Yeah. So we, when we when we looked in the requirement of secret ballot and auditability, that requirement doesn't doesn't happen anywhere else. 
in 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 the current security paradigm. So we don't we lack this this the fundamental technology how to make this work. The problem is very similar uh, than uh, creating a true digital cash. So whenever is a, a first of all the way you find a crackpot a sure tell way of telling the crackpot in this area of election securities when somebody starts saying oh it's easy there's nothing easy here yeah <laughs> so anyone who claims we have a solution uh, they don't understand the problem but if somebody would if we when a small company or people say we have solved the election security problem the answer to that is where's your digital cash and your trillion dollars because first of all you if you if you invent that math and that whole thing you are in line for a Nobel Prize. But even before the Nobel Prize, you create a digital cash, which is a trillion-dollar business. So if you have invented that, you're probably not worrying about elections. You are first creating your first trillion dollars by releasing a true digital cash and then worrying about this later. Got but it. last but not least, this is not a U.S., but a, most of the European countries yeah. have a constitutional requirement. And I, I'm... I'm, I'm Phrasing it from one of the largest European countries where the law stipulates that how elections are conducted, how the votes are counted and how election is audited has to be understandable for a common man without no with no special tools or education. Mm -hmm. So until we live in a a, because one of the the, uh, promising technologies in this area is called homomorphic encryption Uh, before. We are in the started universe where teenagers are casually talking about quantum mechanics. I'm not going to be spending my time trying to explain 70-year-old poll worker how homophobic encryption works. Yeah. So every single thing, how we look that it could be possible to solve this in online voting is so complex, and there's so few people in the whole planet Earth who understand it. Right. It becomes an impossible problem. And just last but not least, blockchain is not a solution. Uh, blockchain is a solution looking for a problem. It really haven't found any problem it can solve. And election is absolutely not one of them. Wow. So there's a number of peer-reviewed papers showing why blockchain is fundamentally incompatible with general public elections. And just to be more fun, there's a, 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 a uh, app which has been now uh, trialed in the U.S., and there's now uh, more than one security research of that. They claim to be blockchain uh, voting. They have been around for a few years. They don't have blockchain in their blockchain. So even the whole claim that they're using blockchain is not true. And bringing everything full circle, just like like how we said there was three, you know, voting machines, you know, there's three Internet companies, really major ones in the United States, Time Warner, Comcast and, uh, you know, I, I forget the other one. But do you think we're going to see the collapse of net neutrality? Is that something that that we should be really concerned for as well on top of voting? Uh, so so collapse of net neutrality, uh, which only place where it really is is a, is a question is the United States. The rest of the world have rejected basically the whole notation. Yeah. Uh, the, definitely net neutrality is something which we need. It's, a, it's a, really when you look what Internet is all about, what it's designed for, whether it's when you look at the ARPANET, the military background, or whether you look, as, as, as I said, I have, I'm one of the co-founders of the first, first pan-European Internet server, I, I deeply care about the internet. 
so that is absolutely worth of, of defending. And, and the other part which is absolutely worth defending is, is encryption. And there are reasons, uh, again, we are now in a crypto wars number three, when a, a, again, a, a, a right to encrypt and right to have privacy online is yet another time under attack. Yeah. So uh, those things are very important. If there's no way of uh, a free communication, uh, there's no freedom of speech. And so once, if you, if what, the moment you are, you are, you are taking a stab on net neutrality and online and a right to use encryption, you are literally taking a stab in the freedom of speech and freedom of press and everything coming from that. And also you are literally opening the door for adversaries. So encryption is really the only thing which keeps nations, banks, everything safe. Once you start installing backdoors, we know historically every backdoor will be discovered yeah. by the bad actors and used against you. There is no safe backdoor, full stop. Wow. I, Sarah and Hari, I got to say, like, this has been one of the greatest honors of my life talking to you guys. I'm, I am so grateful for what you did with this film. And I, I, I mean, I, 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 I wish it could be mandatory viewing for every American. You know, I, I really mean that because I think it's imperative that people know what is happening to our elections and our democracy and, 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 and to our representatives. And I'm so, I'm so grateful. One thing actually is that, is that HBO, um, hopefully are going to air this again, <clears throat> do an open, open their signal, um, so that if you don't have HBO, um, you can still watch it. And, and we're not sure when that will happen, but they're talking about doing that sometime before the election. It's just opening it up so everybody can see it. That's, that's amazing. And, and this is going to air on March 30th, so it will have come out on March 26th. Is that correct? It'll, it'll be on HBO March 26th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Well, thank, thank you guys. Um, but then, you know, HBO Now and HBO Go and and then open signal later. I, I'm just so moved by the film. And, and, and final question, Sarah and Hari, what's next for you two? <laughs> well, I have a horrible feeling there's a third one to come, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, think <it> will. <laughs> I don't know. But Hari's working like a demon to try and secure things. Yeah, because I mean... Yeah, the- I'm, I, yeah I'm, I'm uh, me and my, my company, we are... We are working for a number of Secretary of State and, and certain agencies in the United States. And also we're working internationally uh, for other friendly nations to secure their elections. So a lot of work in uh, helping to secure democratic processes. It's not our main business at all. It's, it's, it's one part of the, our security practices. Uh, so it's not my main thing, so to speak, but a lot of work done there. Uh, in order to to help uh, as many jurisdictions and, and nation states uh, to secure their own elections. And Sarah, are you going to be following them around during this 2020 election? <laughs> no, I think we're taking we're taking. I'm going to spend, I hope, um, m- much of this year trying to get this out. Normally, when I finish the film and I put it out, I'm, I'm moving on to the next, next project. I have a little yeah. one that I'm working on, but. This, I think, is too important, and I want to spend time to um, promote it, talk about it, get it out there. And and what can so the, thank you for helping us do that? Of course, thank you for coming on. And last thing, you know, what what can the audience do to help? 
I know you gave some indications, but like, you know, and I know it's not one answer, but what would you say in, in, in a broad sense? Like, what's the, you know, besides audits and, and voting what, and, you know, volunteering, what, what can we do? Well, I think they need to be in touch with their secretaries of state. It's, it's shocking to me that the majority of secretaries of state have not got their heads around this and they are the ones controlling these elections. Um, so they need to be in touch with their secretary of state and their local election officials and just start talking and just ask people to watch this. And, um, and as Hari said, um, demand a paper ballot. Yeah. Demand a paper ballot and demand that it is actually counted. I was not cross of registration rolls in New York. And when I went to vote, this is in 2016, I voted in the same place for 30 years. They said, hi, Sarah, and then I'm not on the rolls. What? And they, the woman said to me, well, are you a Democrat? And I said, yes. And she said, well, there are thousands of you. As it turned out, NPR did an investigation, and there was about 300,000 between Brooklyn and Lower Manhattan that were knocked off the rolls. What? Um, and and um, she gave me a piece of paper, an absentee ballot, and I said, can you look me in the eye and tell me this will be counted? And she said, no. So we have to insist that we get paper ballots and we have to insist that they're counted and then insist that there is a risk-limiting audit, that, 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 that they randomly select um, some paper ballots to hand count because that's, that's all very doable. Yeah. And that's something we can all, we can all demand and ask for. Uh, I, would, I would actually a little bit add to that. So there are two different kinds of states in the United States. Uh, bottom-up and top-down. So in top-down state, the Secretary of State has a great power to uh, shape how the elections are conducted in that state. When it is bottom-up state, it actually is the counties who are in the driver's seat. So depending yeah. which kind of state you are, conducting Secretary of State office is never a bad idea. Yeah. But actually the point of influence, how you can influence the elections to be conducted in your jurisdiction. It might be closer to home. It might be just your own county, which you need to influence. Yeah. Yes. Well, wow. Well, thank you yeah. guys so much for your time. I'm, I'm eternally grateful. And I know this film is going to, it's really going to make headlines. And, and I'm so grateful that you did it. And thank you for everything that you're doing, Hari and Sarah. I'm, I'm, I, I really have so much gratitude and I'm grateful for your time. And I hope during these trying times, you guys are able to stay safe and healthy and positive. Thank you very oh, much. Thank you for having thank us. You oh, guys, it's been a real pleasure. Thank, thank you, you so much. If you like the show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.